morning. My name's uh, Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor at City Reformed. Uh, we're dismissing our children for Children's Church. You may have forgotten who I am. I've been away for two weeks, um, which in, in the lifespan of our church can feel like two years. A lot happens. Uh, I've heard good things about church in my absence. Um, I've been listening to some sermons. Uh, not all have been posted yet, but I'm eager to, to hear how God's been working through the preaching of the word in my absence. Um, uh, also, I've uh, been away one week of vacation, one week uh, teaching with the, for the Coalition of Christian Outreach, a, a college ministry that we're, uh, we're associated with on numerous fronts. Uh, we were uh, teaching, I was teaching at the beach, which is like one of the best gigs you can ever get. I'm really thankful for that. Um, and uh, it was a, a great time for our family, so we appreciate the, the freedom our church gives us to pursue those things. We're continuing through the book of the Bible, uh, a book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, a book that shows the renewal of God's people at a particular time in history. Uh, and we'll see this week and in coming weeks that this is a message that though it is many years ago, in a, a land long, long ago, and a, a time of relating to God even that was different as these people lived under the law of Moses before the cross of Christ, there are differences and yet many similarities. These are a people that needed to be renewed. And one of our goals as we work, work through the book of Nehemiah is to think ourselves, what does it look like for us to be a people who are renewed, reformed, revived, who come again to God with fresh love for Christ and fresh obedience. So we'll, we'll see this week uh, a number of ways in which the people respond to the powerful working of God's word in their midst. I'm going to read from uh, the very end of chapter 9 through chapter 10. There's a long a list of names that I'm not going to read all of. You can take this home with you and read them on your own. Uh, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have it there for you in the text and we'll continue uh, our reading on the other side of, uh, of uh, many of the names. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9 beginning in verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah. Continuing in uh, uh, verse 28 of chapter 10. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy, them from, buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moons, the appointed feasts the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. 
We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses, at times appointed year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herd, herds and of our flocks, and to bring the fruit first of our dough and of our and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, and the wine and the oil to the priest, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priests, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithe. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is a uh, sort of a challenging passage to relate to. It has a lot of detail in it. Uh, detail of how they were living out their faithfulness to the law of Moses. Uh, as you probably know, uh, Jesus uh, himself said that he fulfilled the law. And the New Testament makes it clear that believers in Jesus on the other side of the cross don't live under the law as a, a system of regulating their life. And so in, in some ways, we, we might say at first, this doesn't have a lot to do with us. We're not under the same laws per se. But there are principles here that are important. There's things that we can learn. And while the exact application may not be the same, the principle of the matter has a lot to say. I want to do three things as we look at the passage today. First of all, we'll try to understand what's happening. What is actually happening here. And secondly, we'll think about why this is so important to us. And third, we'll hear some of the application as we apply these principles to our situation. So first of all, what's happening uh, this passage is an example of what we might call in the Bible a covenant renewal ceremony. It's something that happens at various places in the Bible. God's people were living under covenant regulations with him. And at certain key times in their history, they found it important and helpful to renew their commitments to God. This happened at various times in, in the Bible. Uh, for instance, in the book of uh, Exodus, it happened to the middle of the book. As God's people were brought out of their slavery in Egypt. And then after wandering 40 years in the wilderness, one generation, they did it again. They renewed the terms of the covenant. They renewed their commitments to God. It happened at times of renewal. In whenever uh, God was working through the kings of Israel to bring renewal. For instance, after one of the good kings in the kingdom of Judah found the book of the law and brought renewal, Josiah led his people in renewal and they recommitted themselves to the covenant. So the thing that's happening here is not unfamiliar in the Bible, it may be somewhat unfamiliar to us, but it is a response to God's renewing work in their lives. When we want to interpret this passage, it's important for us to understand the context in which it's happening. 
Uh, I was uh, at the beach uh, with uh, my family. I was talking with my, my kids about uh, some of the homes that were for sale there and the astronomical prices of buying a beach house that's close to the beach in, in many parts of the country. And I, I shared with them an old real estate, uh, uh, we might say aphorism that many of you have heard before. If you want to know what factors determine the price of real estate, the real estate uh, brokers would tell you there are three things. Location, location, and location. Have you, have you heard that before? In other words, where you have property tells you everything about how much it's going to be worth. Right? So even a small lot near the beach on a developed area could be worth a lot of money. Well, a similar principle applies to biblical interpretation. When we're looking at a passage and we want to understand what it means, there are three principles that are of most importance, and they are Location, location, location. Where is this passage in the location of the Bible? We've already been talking about it. We're reading in Nehemiah before Christ, before the, the completion of God's work of redemption in Jesus. But we're also here in the midst of a renewal of God's people. The very beginning of our passage begins with these words. It says, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. So the covenant renewal, according to the, the book of Nehemiah, is because of all this. Because of everything that's been happening the last couple of chapters of Nehemiah. So if we're going to understand what's happening here in this covenant renewal ceremony, we have to understand what happened before. The last couple of weeks have been ones where God's people have been confronted by the power of his word, and they have been led to real deep, heartfelt repentance and confession of sin. They are in the midst of being renewed and restored. As I said before we even read the text, I think this is important for us because down through the ages, God's people are always in need of renewal and restoration. We are in need of this today just as they were 250, 100 years ago. Two, yeah, 2,500 years ago. We need to be renewed and restored. What we see as we look at this passage is that true renewal and restoration brings us into contact not only with our need, our sin, with God's holiness and his grace, but having experienced his grace, we move outward with fresh commitment. The passage that we see today is a passage of recommitment. In light of these things, because of these things, we make the writers say here, a firm covenant in writing. We know as we look at the passage that they're taking their recommitment seriously. 2,500 years ago, as today, when you want to show that you're serious about something, you put it in writing. We see in the passage uh, a principle that's good for us and important to consider that God, when he works in our life, calls us to commitment and he calls us to make our commitment real and vivid and particular. The first thing we see as we look at this passage today is that as these people are renewed by God, they are led to recommit themselves in ways that really are practical in their situation. Let me explain a little bit about the recommitment that we see going on here. We were reminded uh, that God, God's people had often fallen from their obedience. And many, uh, many generations earlier, their the rebellion of, against God took such a deep-seated form that God removed his protection and used 
the empire of Babylon, of all things, is a tool of judgment, refining, and discipline. The, the people of Israel, particularly the southern kingdom, all that was left, the, the area of Jerusalem and Judah, were taken into captivity in Babylon. And there for 70 years they lived under the heavy hand of Babylon. Seventy years later, they were restored to the land. They began to rebuild the temple. But 90 years passed, and their city was still in ruins. At the beginning of our book, Nehemiah, who's risen to a place of power, and now the Persian Empire seeks the Persian king for help. And he's sent back to Judah to rebuild the city. For seven chapters, we follow the challenges Nehemiah faced as they rebuilt the city and dealt with the immediate threats. But here, in the next seven chapters, from eight, uh, sorry, next six, something like that, six and seven chapters, um, we see a renewing of the people spiritually. They read the law of God in chapter eight. They are confronted with the power of what God has done for them in the past, how he was renewing them, but they're also painfully aware of how far short they fall. They participate in one of the great feasts and festivals uh, where they are reminded of God's gracious work among them. And then, a couple of weeks later, we read this last week, but a couple of weeks in their time, they return for a ceremony in which they confess not only their sin, but the sins of their fathers. They're honest about where they have come from and who they are, who they are against the context of God's renew, renewing and redeeming grace. And here, in this passage, they recommit themselves to fresh obedience. Again, we remind ourselves we're not under the same terms of relating to God as they are. We see in the passage several references to the law of Moses. And we see it worked out practically in their midst. But we learn from them that recommitment is a serious matter and it affects the real stuff that we do. One of the things that we see whenever they talk about this, we see how serious they are, is that when they talk about their recommitment in verse 29... They speak of entering into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. They understood, they understood that dealing with God was no, was no thing. He was not someone to be trifled with. There's a great danger we can all face that we would use the language of religion or the things of God as a cloak for our own purposes or our own agenda. We are reminded here that God is not one to be trifled with, that when we enter into covenant with him, there are deep and serious consequences of belonging to God, that rejecting him and turning away from what we know brings consequences with it. That's not the focus of the passage. It's not elaborated here, but we see in that verse 29 uh, uh, the, the hints and the reminders that following God is serious business. We also see in verse 29 in the second half that their commitment was to do all that God commanded them. They were committed, verse 29, to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. Then, as we look further in verses 30 through 39, they highlight the aspects of God that deal most specifically with their circumstances. So on one hand, they say, we're going to do all that you tell us. We recognize that you're God, you're the creator, we're the creation. And that the proper response is to listen to you, to conform our lives to your pattern. But they take a step further in, in thinking carefully about how that looks in their actual lives. What were the things they were actually struggling with? 
Well, in verses 30 and 39, we see that they emphasize three, uh, three types of things. And I, actually, I think as I reread it, there's probably a fourth. The first is their faithfulness in marriage. And these people were tempted, as we are today, to use marriage and sexuality for all kinds of our purposes, ones that we create for ourselves. These people were tempted to use marriage with the peoples around them of different religions as a means of climbing socially or finding stability. They recognized this as a temptation and spoke specifically against it and committed against the very thing that was most tempting for them. They also were tempted as they interact with the peoples around them that weren't living under the law of Moses. They they were tempted to not follow Sabbath observance or to pick up the financial practices of the people around them. And so they commit themselves to resting on the, the seventh day of the week. They committed themselves to honoring that day as holy, not doing work. And they also commit themselves to a practice of debt forgiveness that was unique to the law of Moses. They weren't to use their financial resources as a means of accumulating prosperity at the expense of others. So there's a financial and religious commitment there. Then we see the bulk of this section is their commitment to support the work of their church, so to speak. They were supporting the ministry of the temple, the sacrifices, the rituals, the religious leaders who were going to lead them and continue faithfulness. And it was going to be costly. It would require wood for burning sacrifices. It would record finances. It would record the first fruits of their harvest. They were to bring that which was most dear to them and offer it before God. A reminder that supporting the ongoing work of faithfulness can be costly for us. But fourth and finally, and I hadn't really seen this till I was rereading it today and I was reminded that they not only bring their stuff but they bring their family it's an interesting reminder that says they bring their firstborn to the temple not as a sacrifice but as a commitment to show that even their family is offered to God well the principles here are ones that we can relate to aren't they the challenges that we face in our world surround exactly these same things they're not played out in the same way We're on the other side of many, many changes, not only the religious change and the cross and the law of Moses, but we're no longer an agrarian culture in the ancient Near East. There's the differences, but we still face challenges in just the same place, don't we? Marriage and sexuality, work and rest, commitment to supporting religious activities, and even our own families, if not offered to God, can be A place where God's kingdom is diminished and our own agenda is advanced. These are very real things we struggle with today. I'd like to think, secondly, as we try to understand, after having understood the passage, I'd like to think with you about how we face challenges in the same way. Not only in these particular areas, but maybe, maybe most broadly and generally, this challenge to commit ourselves in particular areas as they did. We saw the depth of their commitment. They responded to the the gracious work of God, his, his redeeming power in their midst. They responded by making a commitment, by putting it in writing, by recognizing the gravity of the commitment and agreeing to follow all that God said, particularly in those areas that were challenging. We struggle to do that, don't we? Maybe first and foremost because we are a people who live in a culture that struggles with commitment. 
But I think if we're honest, we'd recognize that that is true. And, and perhaps it's in part a byproduct of having so many options before us. Do you ever find it difficult to make a decision? Do you ever find it difficult to make a commitment, just generally speaking? It can be overwhelming for me just going through the fast food uh, restaurant checkout sometimes. They're, they're sort of rushing you along. It has to be fast food after all. And I can't even find my place in all of the things that are listed there. We are presented with a bewildering number of choices. Economists remind us that every time we make a choice to purchase one thing, there is an opportunity cost of something else that we can't have. If you go to the fast food restaurant with only $5 and you choose to buy a Big Mac, which is something around that area, that means you, you can't have a chicken salad. You have one or the other with that certain thing, that certain amount of money. In similar ways, in all, all the rest of our lives, we face opportunity cost whenever we have to make a commitment. Some of us find it difficult to commit to friendships or commit to events and activities. Have you ever had a time where someone's invited you to do something and you found yourself thinking, I wonder if I'll get a better option? If I click yes on the evite, I'm, I'm publicly in, but what if something better happens later? Have you felt this challenge perhaps in other relationships? Saying yes to marriage is saying no to all other potential spouses. And sometimes we freeze up and stick, afraid of commitment. Saying yes to a church as a member of a church means at least for the time being, while you're committed there, saying no to all other congregations and churches. The, the culture that we live in and the one in which we operate, the one which influences so deeply is one that always encourages to keep our options open, not to commit. But one of the features of modern life, sociologists tell us, is that we are a less committed people as a country and we are less committed as a church. Nehemiah challenges that. He challenges us with this prospect that having experienced God's renewing power, we are called to be people of commitment. That sign it on the line, so to speak, for certain things. We're going to think about what some of those areas may be, but again, we're just thinking of the general principle here. It's going to be quite hard. I'd like to think in, with you in terms of the basic shape of the gospel as we struggle with commitment. As we struggle to commit ourselves to God's purposes, to align with him, to do what he says even when it's hard, we really are participating in the general flow of the gospel. The Bible reminds us that Jesus saves us by going to death. He, he allows himself to be cut off. He says no to so many other things, even good things, because he's following the path of obedience. Jesus picks up his cross and he moves to his death in our place because he loved us. And on the other side of death on the cross is the empty tomb and resurrection. Oh, the same picture, the same pattern that Jesus experienced in his life is the pattern that he offers to all that follow him. He says, if you're going to be my follower, you too pick up your cross. Sometimes walking a path of commitment will feel like death. Walking the path of confession, as we looked at last week, 
as these people confess their sins and the sins of their fathers, that can feel to us like death. We acknowledge openly our sin, our rebellion, our brokenness, and that which we have come from. And these two forms of death can be life-giving when viewed in terms of the gospel. Because they are, after all, the pathway to life. On the other side of the cross is the power of the Spirit. As we participate in the cross-carrying of commitment and the cross-carrying of confession, we walk forward in the power of God's Spirit. Friends, what we learn from these passages is that God renews us in the processes of responding to his word, but also in the processes of confession and commitment. We see God at work in these places. The, The immediate feeling feels like death. I'm doing something I don't want because I've committed to it. But on the other side comes life and power and the fullness of God's spirit. And I find myself wondering if perhaps one of the reasons we miss the full power of God working among us is we're so intent on keeping all of our options open. There's no ministry you can be involved in in any capacity that doesn't call you to commit, to give up options. It'll put challenges on your time. It'll make you do things you don't want to do and show up in places you don't want to show up. But in that place of cross-carrying, we see the power of the resurrected Lord. This is the cycle of renewal and reformation. This is the cycle of grace that involves commitment. I say just briefly and specifically that even our processes of confession really only take root when we're specific in our commitments. Maybe you can think in your own life as I can about ways in which you struggle with sin. You struggle turning from God. You struggle loving others and God as you should. You find yourself struggling and the temptation is to struggle in secret and to struggle on your own and to make vague promises of how it will be different. The power of the gospel breaks in when we start to be real and honest with others and where our confession is transparent and when we respond with commitment to do something different. I know it's sort of low-hanging fruit, but it's such an easy example. It applies in this situation. Many men in our congregation, myself included, know powerfully the temptation and struggle with sexual sin. And as a congregation, we found that unless our men and women are committed to living together in transparency, making their their confession real, making their commitments to live differently real, unless that happens, we get caught in a cycle of self-deception. We promise vague change, and we delude ourselves with cheap grace. Grace that is real calls us into commitment with others that can be seen. And it's there that God's power is wonderfully made manifest. So third and finally, let's be specific. Let's think about these areas. These areas where they are called to commitment, we too are called to commitment. Places that obedience will feel for us like them at times like cross-caring. But places where the power of God comes and meets us as we trust him. First, we see that for them, as for us, marriage is a challenge. As Christians, we receive marriage as something from God. We don't define it ourselves. We don't make it up, and it's not merely for our pleasure. 
God calls husband and wife together in marriage for a lifetime commitment. Sin can break that. But for some of us, obedience means staying in a hard marriage. For some of us, obedience means that we can't marry someone we really like. Christians receive marriage as something given to us. And for many of us, it can be a place of pain and difficulty. Obedience to God in this area can feel like cross-carrying. The particular concern that Nehemiah has is that we not marry with people outside the faith. For some of you, for some of our friends, for some people very close to us, that is a very difficult challenge and a call. It seems to rule out many options or perhaps ruling out a person that you like deeply. The passage says they should not marry people of the land. The reason is because they were of a different religion. People from other ethnic backgrounds who converted to follow God were welcomed in and included in the covenant of grace. But for them and for us, interfaith marriage is a large hindrance of our spiritual growth. If this is where you find yourself now, then you need to be faithful. But as we face the decisions and as we ask hard questions about what it means for us to be faithful, we must live under the commands of scripture that say we are to marry in the Lord. For some of you, that's hard. Maybe the hardest thing in your life. But the other side of the cross is the resurrection. And it's in that hardness that God meets us. It's in that hardness where together as a community we recognize some of the unique challenges faced by people around us. It's in that hardness that we see God's power. Isn't the same true in our work, in our rest? In the ancient world, in Nehemiah's time, the people were challenged and tempted to do business in all the hours of the day that the people around them did, to work nonstop, to always look for a profit. Yet the call of Sabbath is a call to rest. We, we recognize that some of our jobs, particularly medical ones, are ones that do call for certain types of round-the-clock engagement. But for all of us, we recognize the pressures are great to work without ceasing when we begin to functionally allow our jobs to function as our God. The call to break, to rest, the Sabbath is a call to make commitments, to set boundaries, and to say no. This becomes the place where the power of God's spirit is at work as we commit ourselves to him. We also see their call to support the work of ministry. For us, that comes in play when we give part of what we have to supporting ministry in our church and beyond the church, throughout our city and beyond the world. The call of generosity for Christians is a call to give generously and sacrificially. It means that saying yes to supporting various ministries and important uh, ways of service means saying no to other things we want or would otherwise have. This becomes for us a type of cross-caring that leads us back to the power of God's Spirit. Finally, we're reminded that these people were called to bring not only the stuff, but even their children. What a powerful ceremony that must have been to bring their firstborn son to the temple. Not to say that a firstborn son was more important than any other children but it was symbolic of them offering before God the hopes and fears of their family lineage. 
committed him. Those of us who are parents know that our calling as parents is important and all-encompassing. But we must wonder if sometimes our families can become for us an idol placed higher than God's purposes. Places where we put demands on God and tell him how things will be. As they walked into the temple carrying with them the thing that would have been most important in that culture in that time. A, a firstborn child that would have carried the hopes and dreams of the family with them. They're reminded that life comes through sacrifice. As they walked into the temple where the blood of the sacrifices was fresh. They would have been reminded that no one sacrifices more than God. The foundation of our grace and our hope and the power we have to live differently is founded on the premise that God gave first. That he so loved the world, including rebellious people like me and you, that he spared no expense to give us life. Hundreds of years later, after the time of Nehemiah, God would send his own son, his firstborn son, who would forsake marriage for the great feast that he would have at the end of time with all people from all nations who would come in faith. He lived a life of poverty, uh, forsaking legitimate wealth for the service and life and ministry of others. And he lived in obedience to God's ministry perfectly and completely. God gave his son that you would have life. As we see and taste and experience the depth of that, we recognize that walking in commitment and carrying our crosses is not fundamentally a burden, but a privilege. It's a place where we come to know God more deeply and see his power working, the power of our heavenly father who gave his firstborn son that we would have life. We pray in his name.